Hey, this is Mark McCarter, and you're listening to the Never a Bad Game podcast. Now, let's play ball. Can Way win it? 1-0. Line into center, base hit! Run, run in! Runner at third! They come up with it! He's going to score! And the Pandas win it 10-9! The Rocket City Trash Pandas won their first game of 2020. Well, that's our story, and we're sticking to it. The voice you just heard was Josh Carey, the Trash Pandas broadcaster. You'll hear a lot more of that voice later on in the podcast. Josh and some of the Trash Pandas staff did a computer simulation of the Trash Pandas against the Mississippi Braves on what would have been, should have been, could have been the occasion of opening day in 2020, which would have been the debut of the Rocket City Trash Pandas, the new AA minor league baseball team in Madison, Alabama, just outside Huntsville. Trash Pandas won that opening game in a walk-off, a hit by an outfielder named Bo Ray. Now, how cruel is baseball? Ray was given his release last summer. There'll never be a trash panda, never was a trash panda, even if he was their first hero. I'm Mark McCarter. I'm a longtime sports writer in the Southeast and the author of three books. One of them is the namesake for this podcast, Never a Bad Game. It's in its second printing and available through August Publications and NeverABadGame.com. The third, and you're going to be hearing a lot about it in this podcast, and I hope you'll give it a read, is called Pandemonium. Engineering Pro Baseball's Return to the Rocket City. Joining me, as always, my friend, my former colleague, producer, and podcast guru, Greg Thompson. Greg and I started out with this podcast. We wanted to keep it sort of geographically convenient right here in the Mid-South, where I worked at newspapers in Chattanooga and Huntsville. I was able to cover an awful lot of great events from the Olympics to the Final Four, the Masters, and World Series. There's one sport that I've chased around, or maybe it's even chased me around, and that's been minor league baseball. Mark, as you know, this is my favorite time of year. I love baseball, especially in the spring. The weather's good. It's exciting. The thing is, man, it's not just baseball season. It's book season because you've got a new book out. Two of your worlds are coming together. Your early days here in Chattanooga with the Chattanooga Lookouts. And now we're talking about the Trash Pandas and Huntsville Baseball. I know that you've got a date circled on your calendar. I do as well. It's May the 4th. Let's talk some baseball. Let's talk some trash pandas. And let's talk about May the 4th. Yeah, May 4th. That has been circled on the calendar for a long, long time. We couldn't have asked for better scheduling. That's when the trash pandas open up their season, make their debut against the Chattanooga Lookouts. The summer of 1976, I wrote thousands and thousands of words about the Lookouts return of pro baseball when I was covering the team for the Chattanooga News Free Press. Now here in Huntsville, I've already written about 80,000 words about a team that hasn't even played a game yet. But it's been an area that we haven't had pro baseball in six years, and we're hungry for it. Well, Mark, you mentioned it earlier. That's pandemonium, engineering baseball's return to the Rocket City. And folks, it's on sale on the Trash Pandas website. And Mark, I also know that people can order personalized copies from you through the neverabadgame.com website. Isn't that correct? That is correct. Be happy to personalize it for anybody. Be a heck of a Father's Day gift. I know it's very centric, obviously, to Huntsville and the Trash Pandas, but there's some cool baseball stories in it. And I think if you're a minor league baseball fan, you'll enjoy getting to know some of the people in the book, whether it's Ralph Nelson, the team owner, who's had a long career in Major League Baseball as an assistant general manager and one of the architects in putting together the Arizona Diamondbacks. And to hear from Jay Bell, who's going to be our manager here, a great shortstop in his Major League days. Absolutely. So pandemonium. That's crazy in itself. 
but it is that time of year. And for an area that, as you said, so tradition rich with baseball in Huntsville, you guys went without it for six years. Now it's back. Yeah, and it's so tradition rich that it scared me that this Trash Panda's almost gimmicky nickname was not going to fly around here. I mean, we had folks who were looking at Madison missiles and things like that, anything that tied into our space race NASA connection here. The Trash Pandas, I have to admit, it took me a while for it to grow on me, but it's just been an amazing reception for this team, for this nickname. I think about 76 at Ingalls Stadium that first year. They had to be the lookouts when they came back to baseball. And the reception for the players was so great. Those guys would tell you that even now, guys I keep up with say that was their best year in baseball, the most fun they had. They were treated like celebrities. Oh, I can remember that, man. I mean, I was a teenager then. I was 14, but I remember your reporting on it. And I remember those guys coming to town. And I remember sitting there with my dad and we'd go to the games. And those guys were like rock stars to us. And they were double-A baseball players. So I can get the sense of what you guys are going through right now down in Huntsville. It's going to be really weird, though, this year because the players are not going to be able to have that superstar celebrity treatment just because they're going to be more careful. They're not going to be out in public. I think this era of baseball players might not be out on the streets quite as late as some of those guys no, were no. in 76 <laughs> as well. But the overall reception, to think about just for this franchise, for the nickname, for Sprocket, the costume character. Of course, it had to be called Sprocket. <laughs> People have been so eager to see this ballpark. And it's a brand new stadium, Toyota Field. Greg, a quarter million people have already gone through that ballpark in a year's time without a pro baseball game. They've gone for Christmas lights parade. They've gone for movie nights, for concerts. They've had weddings there. It's just been crazy. They did an unveiling one night in downtown Huntsville to unveil the uniforms. They let all the TV anchors come out in the brand new uniforms. There must have been a thousand people or more at a downtown park July night just to see that. So when you have that kind of reaction for an entity, and that's kind of what this is as much as the team, you kind of have to write a book about it, right? Absolutely, man, especially if you're a writer, and especially if you've already written the history of the Southern League as you did Let's talk a little bit about how that book came to be. How did it happen? Ralph Nelson's a team owner. I met him not long after he got to Huntsville, and I gave him a copy of Never a Bad Game and said, welcome to the Southern League. And he takes the book with him on a road trip. He's flying from Boston to Chicago, and, and he said he was really moved by a chapter that I wrote about Don Mincher, president of the Huntsville Stars, later became president of the Southern League, played the big leagues 12 years, and honored to call Don one of the best friends I ever had. And I miss him every day. Well, anyway, Ralph is goes through this chapter about Mitch and has a couple of moving things in there. And next thing you know, he's sitting there in first class and gets all teary-eyed reading the chapter on Don Mitcher. Ralph had actually seen Mitch play his final game. So the first time he met my wife, Patricia, he says, I bet you and I have one thing in common. Your husband's made both of us cry. Probably for uh, different reasons, I'm guessing. <laughs> yes, I've written a lot of things that have caused my wife's eyes to roll back in her head, but not necessarily to tear up. So anyway, the whole thing starts to unfold. And there's all the behind-the-scenes stuff with just negotiations with the government in Madison, the creating the mascot, building the stadium. And there are all these crazy coincidences. Like I mentioned, Ralph happened to be there for Don Mitchell's last at-bat. And Jay Bell, who's going to be the manager, well, Ralph was in the 
Diamondbacks front office. And when they were building that franchise, the first major league player that they signed as a free agent was Jay Bell. And now he's going to be the trash panda's first manager. I mean, what kind of crazy coincidence. That intrigues me. More than just my ability to make Ralph Nelson and Patricia McCarter cry, I love telling stories like that that are just so almost unbelievably coincidental. There's more to just the coincidences because who did Jay Bell get his first home run off of? That's a great coincidence. Jay came up in the Cleveland system. Jay just missed by a year playing for the Lookouts, in fact, back when they were a Cleveland franchise. One of my early conversations with Jay, we started going through names of those guys from the Lookouts in 78, 79, 80, that era, like Chris Bando and sure. Joe Charbonneau and Kevin Romberg. So anyway, Bell, though, actually was drafted by the Minnesota Twins. They traded him to the Cleveland Indians in one of these deals, threw three minor league players in the deal for Burt Blylevin, a really good pitcher, winds up in the Hall of Fame. So Jay Bell actually was through for the season, was an instructional ball in Florida, and gets his phone call, says, we need you in the big leagues. Somebody got hurt. So they fly him to Cleveland, put him in the lineup. Jay Bell's first at bat, he hits a home run off of Burt Blylevin, the Minnesota <laughs> Twins. You can't make it up. You can't no. make it up. And knowing Bird, it was probably a solo home run. He led the league in <laughs> gopher balls a few times. Great pitcher, but what a coincidence there. I know that the coincidences don't just stop with Jay Bell and Mr. Nelson. They go even further. And we heard a little bit from Josh at the top of the podcast. Josh is another coincidence. Perfect segue to Josh Carey, our guest on the podcast today. He laughed about this later. He actually sent an email to Ralph Nelson on April 1st to apply for the Trash Pandas broadcasting job, introducing himself as the grandson of Harry Carey and the son of Skip Carey. And Josh <laughs> told me later, he said, I realized when I sent it on April 1st, Ralph probably just figured it was a April Fool's joke. Josh is a great guy. The odd coincidence here, his granddaddy, and everybody remembers Harry Carey, who was a sensational broadcaster. One of his early broadcast partners was a guy named Gabby Street, who was a manager and a player for the St. Louis Cardinals. After Gabby retired, he became a broadcaster, and Harry Carey was his first partner. So, boom. Another coincidence. So that is a perfect lead into my friend Josh Carey, a terrific guy who has been a great asset to the Trash Pandas, great asset to the Huntsville and Rocket City area with his PR skills, his sales, and I can't wait to hear him on the air. And so it's a thrill for me to introduce my friend Josh Carey to the Never a Bad Game podcast audience. We're here with Josh Carey, the voice of the Rocket City Trash Pandas. Boy, that sounds cool. The Rocket City Trash Pandas, the voice, it means that the season is really here and it's going to happen. You came here to broadcast baseball, and then you spent a year and a half popping popcorn and working as a guard and all that. Just what have you gone through in this season that didn't happen here, and just how you and this entire staff had to pivot, to use that great cliche word? Mark, I think the biggest thing is I learned to appreciate what I have because there were a lot of people who didn't keep their jobs, 40 million-ish. Fortunately, we have an owner or owners, Ralph and Lisa, who appreciate their people and want them to stay employed, one, to help them run the club, but because they care about us. The biggest thing I learned, I learned how to appreciate what everyone does. Like, I had no clue how hard Lindsey Nutt's job is as a marketing director. I knew Garrett's job was hard, but I didn't know exactly what all he had to go through or how much prep that Ryan Curry has to do to prepare a meal for people. I learned to appreciate what the concessionaires go through on those hot days, filling popcorn and drinks. 
I learned how to sell. I've been selling advertising a lot. I learned just how hard that is. I learned so much more about our game and our industry by going through last year than I ever would have been up in a booth broadcasting a game, going to the clubhouse, talking to the manager. I learned to appreciate our industry more. On a personal note, I lost my mother in August. I've lost both my parents now, and so I hold my friends even closer. All these things have made me a better person. I remember when we shut down in March, I couldn't believe it. I thought we overreacted, and I thought we did a little too much in terms of in our initial reaction to this, but I was very narrow-sighted. And now that I've seen everything that's happened, I'm almost grateful for it because it's made me a better person. You've been here now a year and a half, longer than that. What impresses you about this market? The passion for baseball and the willingness to embrace something new. There are a lot of people, and I'm sure there's still some out there, who might not like the Trash Pandas, who might not want to see a new stadium, who want to keep things the way they are. But that's been very few and far in between. This community has embraced us unlike any community I've seen embrace a new ball club because, one, I think they do genuinely miss baseball. They want something to do. And they want something that kind of puts them on the map other than just the aerospace industry, which has been great. But they want something else. And for a community growing as fast as this one, they need something else. And so I've just been very impressed with their ability to embrace us, to accept change, continue to back us, even through a very difficult time like last year. Okay, this community has embraced the Trash Pandas. Mm -hmm. It hasn't always embraced Trash Pandas, the name itself. Your initial reaction to the name, and then have you had to hear it in all the speeches and all the community involvement of people going, oh, that name? My initial reaction is, what the hell is that? But then you read up on it, and you get it. It's cute because you've also heard of names like Flying Squirrels or the Biscuits or the Paddle Ducks. That was going to be a short season team up in Montana. You've learned to appreciate that minor league baseball isn't afraid to be different from the major league game. I quickly embraced it, especially when I saw how much people love the merchandise. <laughs> but I, I also, when I go out in the community and they say that, it's with a grin. I'm going to tell you a quick story. Ralph had a pretty influential person tell him that he felt the name should have been Madison Missiles, which would have made sense, right? Madison Missiles, it runs together perfectly, perfect for the North Alabama community. And so Ralph pitched it to our marketing firm that helped us out, Brandios out in San Diego. And the guy at Brandios made a great point. He said, look, you could do that. It'd be a great name. People would enjoy it. But you don't want that. You don't want everyone to be happy about it. You want people to cringe a little bit. You want people at the water cooler the next day arguing whether Trash Pandas is a good name or not. One guy will love it. One guy will hate it. And that's going to keep building up this crescendo into what will be opening day or the stadium reveal or whatever you want to do. You don't want to be bland with this. You want to create a little stir. And that's exactly what Trash Pandas has done. And I think people now, even those who don't like it, they still put that grin on their face. I'm the proud owner of a Missoula Paddleheads t-shirt. <laughs> I visited their souvenir store last fall on a trip out there, talking to the woman who was running the souvenir store and about what a cool logo they had. And I said, we kind of have an unusual one where I'm from. And I told her Trash Pandas, and she just went, oh, God, they're everybody. That's all anybody talks about. That's who got us excited. And they were looking at what was going on with this organization and the marketing of this name and this logo as an inspiration in Missoula, Montana. Mm -hmm. So I think that says so much about the name. You mentioned your dad. Let's talk a little bit of heredity and with your grandfather, sure. Harry, your dad, Skip, 
We've talked about this some. There's a blessing and a curse with that name. Just sort of elaborate on that. How has that benefited you, and sometimes does it work against you? It kind of depends on where you are in life. When I was a kid, it was great, partly because the Braves were so good, and I would get to go to games pretty much whenever I wanted to. I got to go to five World Series. I would see Grandpa and his celebrity in Chicago. You go up there, you're given the red carpet everywhere you go, right? So that's neat. That's really neat. But then there comes a point where you step into the industry, and not everyone likes you, and they don't even know you. And it's all because you have this last name. For me, I thought I handled it well at the time. I didn't. I didn't handle it well because I was always a quiet guy. I never bothered anyone. And so to have people not like you without even knowing you, that was a hard thing to handle. And I didn't handle it well. I felt a lot of pressure. I felt like I had to be Harry. I had to be Skip. And what I didn't realize is I just had to be me. And unfortunately, it took me stepping out of baseball and doing something different, which was news, for me to understand that. When I first went into the industry completely blind to what was about to hit me, that's when it was really tough. That's where you wish your name were Josh Jones or Smith or someone like that, because then you can be yourself and no one's going to really bug you. But when you have the last name Carey and you're going after something that a lot of people want, which is a big league job, you're going to have a lot of people just not like you. Now that I'm older, more mature, I'm 39, I can now look back on that, understand that I made my mistakes and I've moved on from it. But now I can also go back to when I was a kid and really appreciate what dad and grandpa accomplished. I mean, two members of one family, not just being major league broadcasters, but on super stations, seen nationwide. My grandfather and dad both called the World Series win. I can look back at that now and really appreciate it. So it's been three different areas of life, and I might go through another transition at some point. Who knows? Well, you weren't always sure you were going to get into broadcasting anyway, but you were interested in acting, right? Yeah, I dabbled. I was like a lot of young people at the time. I didn't know what the heck I wanted to do. But yeah, I did some acting in Atlanta. I appeared in a few stage plays. I was in a couple of commercials, nothing that anyone would remember. But I learned very quickly that, boy, I thought broadcasting was hard act Because at the time, and this was before George's film industry really took off, I knew that if I was going to make it, I was going to have to go to either New York and L.A., and neither really appealed to me. I also knew that even if I went out there and did that, there's no guarantee of work. I was looking for something more stable, but also something I enjoyed doing. So acting, I sort of dabbled in. I worked in marketing at a radio station for a couple years. But once I got into broadcasting and the Rome Braves, that's when I just took off with it. You talked about your granddad, and he was this great character, but he was a heck of a broadcaster. Yes, he was. Probably doesn't get enough credit for just being a great baseball guy and a great broadcaster. You were fairly young when he was in his heyday, but what do you remember about your grandpa? Well, I remember he was actually a very shy man, and I know a lot of people might not believe that considering his personality, but you always have someone who's in front of the mic and someone who's behind the mic. What is their personality? Grandpa has never really changed unless he was in private. If he was in private, and a lot of people don't know this, my grandfather was an orphan. His mom died when he was five, and I think his dad ran off when he was two or three. Because of that, whenever he was in private and you weren't talking baseball, he didn't really know how to relate to people because baseball was so much a part of him and so much a part of his identity publicly that if you got him in private and you sat him down and you got to know him, there wasn't really a whole lot there outside of baseball. And it was kind of sad in a lot of ways, but he was a fighter. He was always a guy trying to survive, so he always latched on to who he was publicly. But when you did get him in those private moments, not only was he somewhat limited, but you could tell in those few moments he was a genuinely good man. 
I kind of wish for his sake he had been a doctor or a lawyer or a farmer or whatever. I almost think he would have been happier doing that because we would have seen the real him. And I think the real him would have liked to have a good time. He loved his beer. He loved his drinks. But I think he also would have been much more in touch with the common man. And I think he would have been happier for that. In public, he was just the same on air as he was off air. If you had him at a restaurant around a bunch of people, he was the life of the party, just as he was on the microphone. But it was when he was in private that he was really different. Let's go to May 4th. Trash Panda's at the Chattanooga Lookouts. Mm-hmm. Harry Carey's sitting on your shoulder. What's he whispering into your ear five minutes before the first pitch? Relax and have fun. That was something he was so good at, especially later in life. You mentioned how good of a broadcaster he was. I've heard some of his old St. Louis Cardinal games, and he was good. I'm sure you can find some stuff on YouTube. He was really a heck of a broadcaster. By the time he got to the Cubs, one thing he learned, and he was right in this, and it's really an indictment on the industry. You have to be more than just a good broadcaster. You almost have to be a character now, right? So he found the character, and he ran with it, and he was very successful with it. But he was also, before then, a really good broadcaster. And I think one of the things he learned along the way was... Hey, whether you're being a character or whether you are just being the me from the St. Louis Cardinals, what's allowed me to be so good is that I've always had fun. I can't imagine being anywhere else than a baseball stadium. So enjoy this, and it will come across on air. That's what he would tell me. You and your dad worked together on a broadcast when you were with the Rome Braves. I love the story. I love that he surprised you, in fact, that mm-hmm. night. So take me back to that night in Rome. Yeah, so it's 2007. I'm with the Rome Braves, and this was a little more than a year before Dad would pass away, and he wasn't doing great health-wise. This was a Sunday afternoon. The Rome Braves were playing the Savannah Sand Nats, Mets affiliate. I'm up there, and he shows up. Now, it's Sunday. The Atlanta Braves are playing, too. But one of the cool things when you get to my dad's level is you can kind of make your own schedule. <laughs> he took the night off and came up to Rome, which is about an hour and a half north of Atlanta, and he sat in with me. And it was a blessing because I had a terribly sore throat. It was pollen season. Usually I do okay with the pollen. I wasn't that day. I was barely getting words out. So we get to like the third inning and he's on the broadcast with me. And he says, listen, you want me to cover for you here? I said, yeah, could you? So he's on mic with me and he goes on air. And you got to remember, my dad's been calling Major League Baseball for 33 years. And now he's calling a South Atlantic League game. I mean, this is like asking Al Pacino to do an off-Broadway thing in Biloxi or something like that. (laughs) But he called that game with as much zest and as passionate as if it were an Atlanta Braves game. Didn't really know the players because most of them would never make the majors. But he would look at my scorecard and he just tell you where everyone's positioned, which way the wind's blowing. And he gave me a good two to three innings off while I got some cough drops and really worked on my throat. It was really special because not only did he cover for his youngest, but when you're 25, you don't really always know what's going on. Your parents don't always tell you everything. I knew dad was sick. I didn't know how sick. And now you look back when he passed away and you now appreciate the fact that he made that effort to be there. And yeah, he wound up pinch hitting for me, but even if he didn't, it was special that he was in the booth and we got to call some baseball together one time. And you didn't save the tape. No, I didn't. I was worrying for this little, I'm not trying to be mean. It was a dinky little radio station. The guy back at the studio, he's getting paid $8 an hour to push buttons. All right, he's not saving the tape. Probably doesn't even know who Skip Carey is, but I wish I did have it. I do. We didn't have a season last year. This is still going to be an unusual season, at least at the outset. How does this impact you? How does this impact other broadcasters around the league just in player safety? Mm -hmm. What I can tell you is 
a lot of people are not going to be allowed on the field or in the clubhouse who usually would be media members. I mean, I might, I'm not sure. I'm planning to get my shot here in the next week or so. So we'll see how that changes. Major League Baseball, now that minor league baseball is under Major League Baseball's control, they're calling the shots. And so we got to do whatever they say. For me personally, outside of that, not a whole lot will change. I'm still going to be traveling. I might have to travel separate from the team, take my own car or take a rental, going place to place because we got to use three buses to commute the team because of distancing guidelines. And as for everyone else, as far as I know, there's only one other broadcaster who's going to be traveling in the entire league. Everyone else is going to be home only. If they do road games, they'll do it remotely. So I'm very, very lucky to be where I am. I'm not complaining at all. My genuine hope, though, is that maybe as more people continue to get vaccinated, Major League Baseball will be willing to lift some of these restrictions. But for the first couple of months, at least, it's going to be pretty difficult to do what I usually would like to do or what media as a whole would like to do because access is going to be limited. So May 4th, how nervous are you going to be? How excited are you going to be? Do you have something scripted? Or have you even let yourself think about it yet? No, you know what? I think it's a blessing that we start on the road because I think for the home game, I'm going to be a little more nervous because that game is also going to be streamed on a local TV station. We haven't announced that yet, but it will be streamed. Because of that, I think I'll be a little more nervous because you'll have more eyes for that one. But for the road, I don't think it'll be too bad just because I've done it before. I've called an NCAA tournament game. I've called playoff football, college football, that is. So I've called some pretty big stages. I'm not too worried about the road game. It's the home game I'm a little nervous about. And no, I haven't scripted anything because I don't want to come across as phony. I want it to come from the heart. There's a point of pride right there. You're the only member of the Carey family to have broadcast an NCAA basketball tournament game, right? I'm very proud of that. Stony Brook, go Seawolves. 2016, the basketball team wins its first ever America East Conference Tournament Championship, and they go to Des Moines, Iowa to play the University of Kentucky. We got whipped by about 30. But you talk about a day. That was one of my favorite days because the typical NCAA tournament, you play four games the first round in one site. The first game was UConn, which is the big bad team of the the Northeast. Second game was Kansas. The third game was Indiana. And then the fourth game was Kentucky. I got to see four of the best college basketball programs in history in one day. And for that final game, here I am sitting press row calling this basketball game. And I look to my left and about 50 feet down there is Jim Nance. I'm thinking I'm calling the same game as Jim freaking Nance. Pinch me, someone. That was special. Yeah, to be the only carry to do that, it's a little feather in my cap, especially after what they've all accomplished. Josh Carey, proud to call you a friend. Proud and thrilled that you're here in Huntsville and going to be broadcasting the Trash Pandas. Those rare nights I'm not out here watching, I can't wait to listen to you. Thanks for joining me on this. Thank you, Mark. That's Josh Carey, the voice of the Rocket City Trash Pandas, talking to Never a Bad Game podcast host Mark McCarter right here on the Never a Bad Game podcast. Greg Thompson riding shotgun with Mark. And Mark, what a great interview with Josh. I'm so impressed with him. The depth that he has at 39 years old, it's hard to believe. I remember being a sports writer covering Georgia Tech when Skip brought Josh up to the press box to watch a football game. And Josh had to be maybe 10 years old. And now think that he's on the verge of 40 all of the things that you guys talked about, that's amazing. The other thing I wanted to share was that when I was 17 years old, back in 1979, I got a chance to meet Harry Carey, his grandfather. 
One of the things that struck me about what Josh said is that Harry was a great broadcaster, as you know, and was also a character, as folks know, through television. But I got a chance to talk to him when he was standing on the field. I had taken my grandmother to a Twins game, and he was doing the White Sox at the time. My grandmother kept score, and she watched Harry on cable. I was thinking about being a sportscaster, so she encouraged me to go down and talk to him. He was standing there on the field just by the White Sox dugout. So he was nice enough to strike up a conversation with me, and he would always read people's names off to be remembered during the game. I said, hey, there's my grandmother up there. Would you mind remembering her back to Fort Madison, Iowa? And he says, no, not a problem. Do you have a pen and paper? And of course I didn't. Here I am thinking about being a sportscaster or a sports writer, and I didn't have a pen and a paper. The thing of it was, was that he just looked at me and he was being nice and he goes, son, after the third inning, I have trouble remembering my name if it's not written down and just kind of smiled at me and walked away. But what a nice man. And it's so neat to hear his grandson doing well. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy having him do those games throughout the year. Oh, yeah. I've been impressed with him and just how hard he's worked and everything else. And another conversation one night over a couple of adult beverages, which seemed only appropriate to do that while talking about Harry Carey. But Josh said one thing that really struck with me is so many people know his grandfather because of Will Ferrell impressions on Saturday Night Live. Absolutely. And, and that's really not fair to the legacy of Harry Carey because he was a character and Saturday Night Live turned him into a caricature. It's easy to forget the guy was one of the best baseball broadcasters before he had to have all this showbiz stuff that WGN threw at him. One of the best ever. Exactly. And folks, I want to highly recommend something to you if you get a chance to see it. It will be on repeats on the MLB Network. They did a series called Sounds of the Game. It was Tom Verducci and Bob Costas. They did one on Harry, and it was fantastic. They went back to those Cardinals days, the World Series in 67 and 68. Just a top-flight broadcaster. And Costas shared something in there that I thought was fascinating. Josh touched upon it in the interview about him being a very private person. Costas did a project with Harry. I believe they went back to St. Louis and they were walking through that old neighborhood. They went past the house in which Harry was abandoned. As you mentioned in the interview, he was orphaned. Harry turned to Costas and said, look, I want to go in here, but please turn the cameras off. I just need to have a moment. Costas respected that, and he said that was a whole different side of Harry that you didn't see, but that was a side that Josh talked about during your interview. And one of the things that Costas touched upon is the private side of Harry Carey and the fact that he was a very private person and just a great broadcaster, and sometimes that gets lost in all of the hype and showbiz. Well, Marcus, you know how much I love sportscasters. We could do this all day, talk about the Carey family. But one of the things I want to get back to, and we mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, you've got a new book out. So let's talk about that a little bit. I know you're going to have some speaking engagements, and you've got the event in Chattanooga on May the 4th. But let's talk a little bit about your new book. Yeah, let's talk about sports writers. Sportscasters, are, they're already famous and <laughs> They get rich. We sports writers, we don't have their paychecks. So yeah, let's get back to sports writing, the craft of sports writing. You talked a little bit about how it came about. You're out there with this new book. It's about baseball in a city that's rich with tradition in baseball. We've got a new season coming up, but we don't have a Southern League anymore. 
Yeah, that's just not comfortable to me. And I hope that the grand poobahs of baseball will give that a little bit of a rethought. The restructuring of the minor leagues and contraction of the minor leagues and dropping 40 franchises. And as painful as that was, it may have been some necessary surgery for the health of the game. Ralph and I had this conversation, Ralph Nelson, to go back to him, the owner of the team. In some ways, minor league baseball has an HOA agreement. It's one of those homeowner association <laughs> yeah. deals that you have to keep your lawn mowed. You can't leave junk in the front yard. You've got to take care of your property. Well, there have been a heck of a lot of minor league franchises that probably haven't held up their end of the bargain, the HOA. And I think after sufficient warning and advice and encouragement, it finally came back and the reality of it bit them in the butt. We're down to 120 minor league teams. We're down to eight teams now in the AA South. I do think that eventually maybe some traditionalists will push forward and get things back into maybe the traditional names of these leagues, whether it be the Eastern League, the Texas League, the Southern. It has been odd to have the Pacific Coast League and go watch games at that great Western outpost of Nashville, Tennessee and the Pacific <laughs> Coast League and, and go surfing the next day. Certainly the geography hasn't always made sense, but I hope that they will have a little bit more of a nod to tradition, but it's going to be a different Southern League. We've lost Jackson, Tennessee, and Jacksonville, Florida has moved up to become the AAA Farm Club of Marlins, which is a great geographic move for that franchise. So we've got an eight-team AA South, but it still has a lot of the familiar names and faces, the Lookouts and the Smokies and the Barons and the Montgomery Biscuits, Biloxi Shuckers. And I can think back conversation 15 years ago of laughing about, can you believe anybody would name their team the Biscuits? And then we have the Trash Pandas and Jumbo Shrimp, the Shuckers and teams like that. So anyway, I hate the fact that the league office is closed. A really wonderful woman named Lori Webb, who served admirably as president over the last five years, I guess, five, six, seven years, is retiring from baseball. She's excited about the new chapter in her life and getting to travel a little bit, but it's just not going to quite feel the same that there's not a Southern League. Well, having said all that, and there's a lot of change, I know that you still love the game, and I know that you still love minor league baseball. What's the appeal of minor league baseball to you these days as we move forward? The appeal to me, it still is the stories that's watching the game. But to me, what the overall appeal of minor league baseball is that you can watch minor league baseball on so many different levels. And I don't mean double A, triple A, all that. You can go to a game and you can keep a scorebook and you can watch that game intently as a baseball fan. You can go and you can pay attention and you can file these names away in the back of your head. Just the other day, I caught myself thinking about a game I went to in Greenville, South Carolina two years ago and remember watching an outfielder in that game and going, wow, I really thought that kid was on his way to the big leagues. I wonder what happened to him, obviously missing last season and where he's going to be this year. Is he on path for the big leagues? You can watch it that way and embrace the memories of watching guys come through. Greg, you're in Chattanooga. You can swing a dead cat and hit 16 people tell you they saw Herman Killebrew hit a home run over the Coke bottle in Ingle Stadium, even though that was an eternity ago. Yeah. You, you think about the memories, and I have so many rich memories from the teams and those guys who've come through Chattanooga. It becomes generational. To me, it's the Bruce Robinsons and the Matt Keos and the Dwayne Murphys and Denny Wallings, the guys that I grew up with covering that team. Next generation, maybe it's Edgar Martinez who winds up in the Hall of Fame. Maybe it's Trevor Hoffman, another Hall of Famer who played for the Lookouts on his way to the Hall of Fame. And then maybe a next generation, it's D. Gordon or Yasiel Puig. You can watch and embrace memories of 
hey, you see a guy on the highlights on ESPN or on a game being broadcast on network. Hey, I saw that guy when he was in double A. Or you just have the whole social aspect of being out on a nice summer night with friends, eating ballpark food that's not good for you, drinking beer that you probably shouldn't have had that last one, telling stories and just embracing it as an entertainment alternative. And I think that's what's gotten people here in Huntsville in this area so excited. This is another great entertainment option for people. And especially right now, we want to get out of the house, don't we? And to know on May 11th at Toyota Field in Madison, it's going to be 100% capacity. Plenty of seats for people and plenty of room to get out, walk around, get standing room only tickets, and just be out there and be social. Just those many aspects, I just think minor league and the affordability. Let's don't forget that. It's a second mortgage for you if you're going to take four kids and buy tickets for a major league game. When you talk about just the ability to just get out, that makes me think about, as you brought a couple of things up, there were a select group of players who played at the quote-unquote alternate site last year. It was a very popular thing in the 60-game major league season. There was not a minor league season at all, so you've got these folks that have not had an opportunity to play and compete. They've not been playing live games. So you've got that dynamic coming in. And you have all these people wanting to come back and do something outside at a ballpark. Should be a really interesting year. Oh, I think so. I think teams across the country, there's going to be a demand for tickets. And as soon as capacity can be maxed out at places, I think this has the potential to be a big year for minor league teams and owners and revitalize the interest. And I think that'll only spill over to the big leagues a little bit. Well, folks, as you know, this podcast is called the Never a Bad Game podcast. And it's also the title of Mark's first baseball book. And if folks want to get in depth on that book, you can go down on this very page on this website. And the last podcast listing there is a lengthy conversation. I think it was even more lengthy than you wanted at the time, Mark, talking about (laughs) Never a Bad Game. But I want to talk to you about the process of doing that book, which was 50 stories, 50 plus stories now, and doing your Pandemonium book. Talk to me about that process. Yeah, it was a different process because with the Never a Bad Game book, as you said, it was 50 different stories and I didn't have to write quite as linear. I could write two or three chapters here and there. It didn't much matter what order they wound up in the book. This was obviously a little bit more history, more traditional book style, but I like to think it has a lot of interesting stories that are woven in there. It's not just a history lesson. The process was fascinating just to, first of all, to spend time with Ralph Nelson with his background, but also to talk to Casey and Jason, the guys at Brandios, the company that has created so many of minor league baseball's logos and characters and help with marketing and the nickname. That process, okay, they said the Trash Pandas, it's not just a goofy nickname, and they're not just reaching for something to grab a headline the next day. They do put some thought into these nicknames to get deeper on the Trash Pandas. Obviously, trash pandas, and I would think most of us know if we're all here in the Deep South, it's a raccoon. (laughs) It's actually the official state animal of Tennessee, I think. (laughs) Yeah. I'll never forget, Greg, going way off the grid on this one, but I'll never forget the first time they rolled T-Rack out at a Titans game. Their great raccoon mascot. He comes out on the four-wheeler or whatever he was doing, and he is introduced very grandly as the raccoon being the state animal of Tennessee. And Tom Weir, a friend of mine who worked for USA Today out of Nashville, Tom Weir pipes up is loud enough for all of us here in the press box and goes, I always thought the state animal of Tennessee was roadkill. 
I did too. Yeah, exactly. And I've been here for a but, long time. Yeah, just to come up with the trash pandas, they put a story behind it because a raccoon is apparently one of the most ingenious, creative problem solvers of, of God's green earth here. And these guys actually showed up one night at a meeting and had a YouTube video of a trash panda that's like cracking open a safe, doing stuff with it and solving problems. We're in an engineering city. We're in a city here in Huntsville in North Alabama. Our economy and our lifestyle in a lot of ways is based on military and on engineering and missile defense mm -hmm. and, and problem solving. I almost owe these folks an apology because I've gotten to know Dr. Von Brown's daughter through the years. I've talked with her a time or two. Well, I said in the book that Dr. Warner Von Braun, of course, was the big leader in NASA's space program. I said Dr. Von Braun may have been the original trash panda <laughs> because he was such a problem solver. Just to think about the whole nickname aspect. That was a fun story to tell. You and Josh talked a little bit about it during your interview, the fact that there were other names thrown out there and the consulting group said, no, you want to have that because it's going to generate these conversations conversations. In this little bit of time that we've spent together, it's generated a lot of conversation just about the names. As you look at your book now, it's finished, it's out, and it's available through the Trash Pandas website. And it's also available through neverabadgame.com. When you look at your book, Mark, what were your favorite stories? What stood out to you? This thing never started out as a biography. And in some ways, it became very biographical for several chapters about Ralph Nelson. He's been an amazing story. The guy starts out and begs his way onto the Giants front office as a PR assistant. He's passing out stats to the guys in the press box. Then he climbs a ladder with the Giants and becomes assistant general manager. And then he's one of the architects, along with Joe Gagiola Jr. and Buck Shaw Walter and putting the Diamondbacks together. And then Sandy Alderson hired him away to New York to work in the Major League Baseball office and handle things with umpires. So he's semi-retired. He's sitting in Vermont, just kind of, what's the next step? And his son says, what are you going to do? What are you going to do the rest of your life? And his son says, you need to do something. Ralph remembered a conversation he had had years and years and years ago with a baseball executive who said, you're going to go a long way in the big leagues, Ralph, but the most gratifying thing you'll ever do in baseball is to own and operate a minor league team in a medium-sized city. Ralph looked at the guy and said, I thought he was crazy. It was Bing Devine was the guy's name. Some baseball fans were annoyed. He said, I thought Bing had lost it. Again, going back to another great family baseball name, one of his friends is Bill Bavazzi. Bill's dad, Buzzy, was a longtime baseball player. Oh, yeah. Guy. So Bill owned the Giants' A-ball team in the Northwest League. Ralph was running the farm system there. So Bavazzi had bought this team. He was going to move it from basically a dying market. He'd chosen either Wenatchee, Washington, or Everett, Washington, which is a Seattle suburb. So he settled on Everett, his team. So Ralph says, I'll be there for the press conference. And Ralph says, I got the perfect manager for you. I got Rocky Bridges. Now, Rocky's one of these colorful characters. Rocky was probably Bob Euchre before Bob Euchre was invented. <laughs> really colorful character. One of Rocky's great, great quotes was somebody asked him once if, if you liked escargot. And Rocky said, no, I prefer fast food. <laughs> so... But anyway, here we go to the press conference in Everett. They're announcing the team. They're introducing Rocky as the manager. Rocky gets up and tells everybody, what a great deal. I said, my name is actually Everett. So Ralph gets up and tells the crowd, he says, I'm so glad the Bavazis decided to move the team here because I was going to have one hell of a time finding a manager named Winachi. <laughs> I love all the coincidences and all the threads that we've been able to talk about. When you think about all of that, that's what makes baseball beautiful. And it's one of those things, as 
the Trash Panda story moves forward and the season moves forward, there are more threads to come. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. One of the things that starts tying that knot for me is going to be May 4th to be right there in Chattanooga to watch my Rocket City Trash Pandas play my Chattanooga Lookouts. And I can hardly wait. Absolutely. And it's one of those things that gets me excited about it because when I think about, as you said, when the Lookouts came back to Chattanooga in 76, now you have this fresh team in the Rocket City. You've got two books that one that's covering the whole history of the Southern League with unique stories. And you've got this other one that talks about the rich traditions of that area and the trash pandas themselves in pandemonium. That's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, it's funny, Greg. I was just thinking about it when you brought up those two books. One of them is really, it's history. It is the baseball history of the Southern League. The other one is really present. It's this new team that's come to North Alabama to Huntsville, the Rocket City area. How profound is this? I can't wait now to see what the future holds. Well, Mark, in honor of your guests, there's only one thing to say. Holy cow. Yeah, Greg, at that, let's thank Harry's grandson for joining us on the Never a Bad Game podcast. Thanks to Josh Carey, the voice of the Rocket City Trash Pandas. And let me thank Greg Thompson again for his production, his patience, and most of all, thank you for listening. And maybe thank you in advance for checking out Never a Bad Game or Pandemonium at neverabadgame.com. Till next time, this is Mark McCarter for Greg Thompson, and hope all your games are great ones.